Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Patty. And I'm Trisha. This week we take a trip off Earth in the Curse of Paladon. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions, and the villains, and give you our thoughts on the story as a whole. Now, we'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So, in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T I M E T E A M P, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravelingteamp at teamproductions.com. But first and foremost, as always, it is the story recap by yours truly. Episode 1. On the planet of Paladon, the royal palace, which is built into the high mountains, is being battered by a severe thunderstorm. Inside the castle, young King Paladon is informed by his Chancellor Torbus that the delegates from the Alpha Centauri system have arrived, and the delegate from Earth is en route. High Priest Hepesh is against the meeting, and says that by abandoning their heritage, they will bring down the curse of Agador upon the people of Paladon. The two men begin to quarrel, but are stopped by the king, who reminds them that they are brothers and his regents, and he needs them united to help him acclimatise to the throne. Torbus insists that he is not the one that started the quarrel, and that Hepesh's interference would put everything at risk. Hepesh begins to retort, but the king cuts across him by saying that the meeting will go ahead as planned, and if it is successful, then Paladon will join the Galactic Federation. He asks again for Hepesh's help, and the high priest agrees. Torbus is sent to inform the assembled delegates of the arrival of Alpha Centauri, but as he makes his way down the corridor, he is attacked by an unseen creature who lets out a monstrous growl. The king's champion, Grun, races towards the sound and cowers in fear as the creature retreats. The king and Hepesh arrive shortly afterwards and they find Torbus dead. Hepesh asks what happened and the mute Grun points to a torch emblazoned with a carving of Agador. Meanwhile, the TARDIS arrives on a rocky outcrop beneath the castle. Joe is less than enthusiastic about the trip, as she was about to go on a date with Yates when the Doctor convinced her to come on the TARDIS first test flight. The Doctor goes to check the external view screen, but they aren't working. Joe asks him to confirm that they are back at the unit HQ, and after reading the scanners, the Doctor says that they made a perfect landing. Suddenly, the TARDIS starts to tilt, and they rush outside into the storm, just before it falls off the side of the mountain and plummets several hundred feet to the ground below. The Doctor spots the castle up above and suggests that they go up to it and find help and learn where they are. Inside the castle, the delegate from Alpha Centauri, which is a six-armed alien with a large green bulbous head with one large eye in the centre of it, arrives and greets the king. Alpha Centauri wishes them well with their application to the Federation. Hepesh tries to get the king to change his mind about the meeting and reveals the death of Torbus to Alpha Centauri, who suggests that the meeting should be cancelled. The king puts them at ease and says that there is no threat to them or the other delegates, and he has Hepesh escort them to the delegates' conference room. At the conference room, Hepesh introduces Alpha Centauri to the representative from Arcturus, who has a lizard-like head with tendrils coming out of it, encased in a transparent dome on a mobile life support platform. Arcturus is informed of Torbus's death, and he then produces a dish-like appendage from his platform, which disintegrates a nearby pot, and he says the delegates are prepared to defend themselves if need be. After an arduous climb, the Doctor and Joe reach a ledge but find that they can go no further. They explore the ledgeway and Joe discovers a tunnel into the heart of the mountain and they go inside to investigate. They follow the tunnel until it opens up to a large candlelit chamber with a statue of a fearsome fur-covered creature with savage teeth and claws and a large horn on its head in the centre of it. The Doctor reveals that he has never seen a shrine like it before on Earth. They move further on and come to a junction and the Doctor does eeny meeny to choose their next direction. Their decision is aided by a monstrous roar coming from one of the tunnels, and they take off in the opposite direction. In the throne room, the king and Hepesh are discussing how the two brothers helped him bear the responsibility of the crown due to the untimely death of his father. Hepesh says that even though he is half 
Peladonian and half human, he will become the greatest of all of Peladon's kings and again beseeches him to call off the talks, fearful that they will only become a pawn of the Galactic Federation due to their less advanced civilization. However, the king stands firm in his decision, saying that he can convince the delegates to see their work and sends Hepesh to summon them to the throne room. The doctor and Joe come to a seemingly dead end, but the doctor notices a burning torch on the wall and when he tries to lift it, it opens a secret doorway. They go through and come out behind a tapestry, but quickly hide behind it when they hear someone coming. The doctor is concerned when he sees the figure is actually an ice warrior. Joe says that they should go back into the tunnel, but they are suddenly surrounded by guards. Meanwhile, the Ice Warrior joins his superior, Ice Lord Islir, where they and the other delegates are informed of the death of Torbus. Hepesh proclaims the death to be caused by the curse of Peladon, which sows concern amongst the delegates. Upon Islir's request, Hepesh re- recounts that the legend of the curse states that Agador, the most fearsome of all of Peladon's beasts, and the one that was represented by the statue in the chamber, will return to warn the king and defend him from a dark stranger who will bring misery to the planet. At that moment, the Doctor and Joe are brought into the throne room. Islier greets him, thinking he is the delegate from Merck and the chairman of the talks. He introduces his subordinate, Sorg, and the other delegates follow suit. And as this is going on, Hepes subtly nods to Grun, who leaves the room via one of the tapestries behind the throne. The Doctor apologises for his lateness and says that their ship crashed at the base of the mountain and that it carries his proof of identity. The king, seemingly taken with Joe, says that they can dispense with the standard protocol, but Hepesh insists upon knowing if Joe is of royal blood, as that is the only way females are allowed to access the throne room. Joe immediately seizes on this and takes on a noble bearing and asks to be formally introduced to the king. Introduced as Princess Josephine of Tardis, she is greeted by the smitten king. Islier interrupts their conversation to ask what Joe's function is for the meeting, and the doctor informs him that she is there as a royal observer. Arcturus and Alpha Centauri remind him of the meeting's purpose as well as inform him of the death of Torbus. The discussion then devolves into a squabble between the delegates and the doctor reminds them that their behaviour is beneath their status. Hepesh agrees and suggests the throne room is the wrong place to have these talks and Islir suggests that they return to the delegates' conference room. Before they leave, the king requests to speak to Joe again, less formally, which she happily agrees to. As they exit the throne room, Grun dislodges a large statue of Agador from a parapet above it, and the Doctor watches as it plummets towards them. Episode 2 The Doctor pushes Joe to the side as he pushes the delegates out of the way to safety. Grun retreats back into the secret passageway as the delegates collect themselves, and the Doctor makes sure Joe is okay. Hepesh says that this is a sign from Agador, but the Doctor retorts by saying that they need to look for the real culprit. Hepesh continues to warn off the curse, and his Lear and Arcturus suggest that if the king believes as he does, then maybe the conference should be abandoned. The king interrupts, saying that he wants the conference to go ahead, but his Lear says that it is no use proceeding if there is any danger present. As the king and the delegates argue, Joe motions to the doctor about the tapestry, and he nods for her to go ahead to check it out. She finds evidence of Grun's actions as well as a small electrical device. She makes her way back to the throne room as the doctor attempts to get the delegates to stay. Alpha Centauri is fearful of the barbaric nature of the Peladonians and agrees with Arcturus that they should leave, but the king assures them that they are safe there. The doctor says he and the other delegates will go back to their chambers and discuss the matter further. The king asks Joe to remain, and once they're alone, he asks if she believes his claims of innocence. She tries to hide behind her story of being an observer, but her mood eases when she sees how earnest and honest he is. They begin to form a bond. However, the growing attraction between the two of them is halted when Joe thinks his request for her to speak to the delegates on his behalf is simply a ruse to gain her as a political ally. She storms off, leaving him dejected. 
In his private quarters, Hapesh tells Grun that he is not to blame for the failed attempt on the delegates' lives. He then says that Agador has decreed that the foremost of Peladon's enemies is marked for death and instructs Grun to kill the doctor. In their room, the doctor tells Joe that the electrical device she found is actually a key, very like the ones that the ice warriors use on their ships due to the material used to create it. The doctor informs Joe of his last encounter with them, saying that they are a warlike race. He says only Sorg would have had the strength to dislodge the statue, as Arcturus is confined to his life support system, and Alpha Centauri is too timid to do anything. Joe suggests that they request the TARDIS to be retrieved, but then comments on the fact that the Doctor seems to be enjoying playing the part of the Earth Delegate. Their playful banter is interrupted by the sound of an alarm, and they go to investigate. They discover that the alarm is coming from Arcturus's room, and the Doctor notices that a vital part of his life support system has been removed. He tries to bypass the wiring in order to save him, whilst Joe tries to find the missing component. She suggests searching the delegate's room to see who is responsible, but the doctor forbids her. Soon, Islir, Alpha Centauri and Hepesh arrive and demand to know what is going on, and Joe uses the confusion as a chance to leave the room unnoticed. The doctor informs him of the sabotage and manages to successfully fix the life support system. Hepesh says that it is the furthest sign of Agador's anger, but the Doctor retorts that Agador would have smashed the entire system rather than simply sabotage it. Islier realises that he is being accused and rejects the claim, pointing out that the Doctor could be covering for the fact that they caught him in the act. Meanwhile, Joe has gone to Sorg's room and after a brief search finds the missing component in his chest. She goes to leave but hides behind a tapestry when she hears Sorg returning. Sorg enters the room and sees that the chest is open and also sees Joe's shoes sticking out from under the tapestry. He accosts her, demanding to know why she is there. She shows him the component and he tells her to stay there while he goes to report to Islir, taking a sonic rifle with him. Back in Arcturus' room, the doctor leaves to find Joe after Arcturus reveals that he cannot remember who attacked him. Out in the corridor, he is stopped by Grun, who indicates for the doctor to follow, and they are observed by Hepesh as they go. The delegates begin to discuss the recent events and conclude that as the King's mother was from Earth, coupled with Joe's presence, indicates that Earth wants to have Apeladon as an ally in the Federation, an alliance that would most likely be sealed through marriage. Sorg then arrives and gives Islier the component, saying that he found it in Joe's possession. At that moment, Joe has managed to escape out the window of Sorg's room and precariously makes her way along the ledge as the storm continues to rage around her. She makes her way back inside into the corridors and comes face to face with Agador before fleeing in terror from him. His howls are heard by the doctor who has been led into the catacombs by Grun. Grun abandons him as he flees in terror at the sound of the monster's howls. Joe is stopped by Islir who sends Sorg to kill Agador but he returns to say that he saw nothing. Islir says that she is lying but she insists that she is not and that she was only looking for the doctor. Islir says that he will help find him, but only so that he can question them further about their true motives. He takes her back to the Sorg's room, and after testing her to find out her true motivations, he reveals that there was no sabotage, as Arcturus could have still lived without the component. He says that his people have abandoned their war-mongering ways in favour of a more peaceful way, only fighting to defend themselves. Joe asks who could benefit from faking the sabotage, and he says the Doctor might be able to explain once they find him. At that moment, the Doctor has managed to escape Agador's pursuit and uses a secret doorway to enter the chamber with the statue of Agador. He goes to examine it, but suddenly Hepesh appears and orders Grunt to take him into custody, accusing him of sacrilege and defiling the holy temple of Agador. He is brought before the king, who reluctantly sentences him to death in accordance with Peladonian law. Episode 3 The Doctor says that his trespass into the chamber was unintentional, saying that he didn't know the tunnels would lead there. 
This confuses the king, who is completely unaware of the existence of the tunnels, and Hepesh denies their existence when he asks about them. Islier says the doctor was unaware of the law and should be therefore given an amnesty, but Hepesh says that the crime is too great and reminds the delegates that they are forbidden to interfere in accordance with the Federation Charter. Joe begs the king to intervene, saying that by doing so he will prove his intentions to her and the other delegates. He says that there is only one alternative and that is trial by combat against his champion Grun. The trial will take place the following morning and it will be a fight to the death. The doctor is then escorted to his room by Hepesh and a squad of guards. The doctor indicates he knows what Hepesh is up to and says that there could be consequences for Peladon if he dies. Back in the throne room, Joe is distraught at the turn of events and lashes out at the king, saying that he isn't even trying to help. He insists that he is, but he is bound by the ancient laws of his planet and even a king can't overcome them. He says that his father and Torbus have been trying to remove the laws, but their deaths prevented it and that his mother taught him what she could to help him to rule. Joe again begs him to help and he says that he needs support in order to do it proposing an alliance with Earth through marriage to Joe. She becomes angry as his actions contradict his statements, but again he tries to explain that he must rule in accordance with the law. Joe leaves the room when he admits that he cannot allow his personal feelings to affect his role as king. In the doctor's room, Hepesh tells the doctor that he has arranged for him to escape before the trial, but the doctor is wary of this. Hepesh gives him a map to prove that he is being sincere, and tells him that the TARDIS has been retrieved and is waiting for him and Joe. The Doctor asks why he doesn't just kill him, and Hepesh says that he doesn't want any reprisals against Peladon from the Federation. He says that he is against joining the Federation, as it would mean an end to Peladon's culture and traditions, as well as the exploitation of the planet's resources. The Doctor tries to get him to realise that the Federation means him no harm, and that Hepesh can't stand against him with just Agador. Hepesh then accidentally reveals that he has an ally, but stops before saying anything else, and advises the Doctor to leave before dawn. Meanwhile, the delegates are discussing the trial and Artur says that the events in the throne room are further evidence of an alliance between Earth and Peladon. Joe arrives as they are discussing what to do next, with Alpha Centauri suggesting that they should all leave. Joe says that they can't leave the Doctor behind and Islier supports her by saying that they would need permission from the Federation Grand Council in order to abandon the mission. Arcturus and Alpha Centauri insist that it is too dangerous to remain on Peladon, but Islier says that if the Doctor dies then it could mean a war between Peladon and the Federation. Joe storms off in frustration when they reach an impasse as to what to do, and Islir sends Sorg after her so they can speak in private in Islir's room. Islir joins them and says that the Federation law dictates that there must be a unanimous decision from all delegates before any course of action is taken. He says that he voted to stay on Peladon as payment for the Doctor saving his life when the statue nearly killed him. Together, they come up with a plan to rescue the Doctor, but they are unaware that he is being... Uh, Together they come up with a plan to rescue the Doctor, but they are unaware that they are being listened to by Arturus, who moves away as they exit the room. In his room, the Doctor builds a small hypnotic device and then leaves, using the map that Hepesh gave him to navigate the corridors. However, his suspicions of Hepesh prove to be true as the High Priest dispatches guards to find him and kill him. He apologises to Grun for depriving him of the chance to kill him personally, but says the Doctor will die soon. The Doctor enters one of the underground tunnels and encounters Agador. He pulls out the hypnotic device and walks towards the mighty beast. He begins to sing a Venusian lullaby to the creature, who starts to fall asleep due to the soothing melody and the hypnotic device. The doctor goes to pet him, but Agador rears up, having not fully fallen asleep, and the doctor frantically tries to hypnotise him again. He is nearly successful, but Joe arrives and chases Agador away with a torch, mistaking Agador's sleepy growls as a sign of aggression against the doctor. 
The doctor berates her for her interference, but softens when he sees how upset she is when she says all she wanted to do was help him. He commends her for her bravery and says that they shouldn't go to find the king. In the throne room is Lear and Zorg demand to know where the doctor is, having discovered his room empty when they went to rescue him. The king says that he has escaped and that Hepesh says that his life is forfeit. The doctor and Joe then enter the room and reveal their encounter with Agador. Hepesh accuses him of blasphemy, but the doctor reports that Agador is real and is currently living in the hidden tunnels. Hepesh again says that the tunnels do not exist and that the doctor is merely stalling for time to avoid trial by combat. Joe again begs the king to intervene, but he reluctantly allows Hepesh to order the trial to commence. They all make their way to the viewing balcony above the fight pit and watch as the doctor and Grun climb down into it. The two combatants each pick up a pike and then begin to fight, trading strikes and dodging slashes. Grun's weapon becomes stuck in a wooden log and he retreats from the doctor. Hepesh throws down a sword which Grun uses to chop the doctor's pike apart. The doctor manages to disarm Grun and the two engage in a physical fight with the doctor using his Venusian Aikido against Grun's wrestling. After an intense bout, the doctor emerges victorious and spares Grun's life. The king stands up to announce the doctor's freedom when suddenly Arcturus aims a gun at the doctor. Episode 4 Arcturus's platform explodes as a blast from Sorg's sonic rifle hits it, killing the would-be assassin. Hepesh uses the confusion to slip away unnoticed, accompanied by one of his guards. A short while later, the doctor explains the plot to the confused king. Hepesh had found one of the last surviving members of Agador's species in the mountains and trained it to obey his commands. He then used the creature in an effort to keep Paladon out of the Federation and keep a grip on the planet through superstition. Arturus had struck a deal in private with Hepesh to gain the sole trading rights to Paladon's vast mineral resources, as his leers explains that his own planet desperately needed them. Alpha Centauri and Joe say that with Arturus dead, everything would be alright, but the Doctor says that Hepesh is still alive and poses a great threat. He says that the High Priest's suspicions were made worse by Arturus' scheming, and he firmly believes the Federation to be evil, and so he will try to ensure Paladon's safety by accusing the Ice Warriors of murdering Arturus. Isdir says that his people and Arturus's are old enemies, and Alpha Centauri states that a conflict between them could split the Federation, as its members will join one side or the other. The Doctor tells the King that he must replace Hepesh immediately, but the King says that such an act could cause a civil war on the planet, and asks for his Federation support. Alpha Centauri says that the Federation Charter forbids interference in a planetary conflict, but his leader says that a vote for emergency powers could get it around it. As they are talking, Grun nods at the Doctor and then quietly leaves the room. The Doctor covers for him by saying that they will attempt to convince Alpha Centauri to vote in favour of the emergency powers. The king allows them to leave, vowing to remove Hepesh once he is assured of their support. Islier and Alpha Centauri make their way down the corridor, followed by the Doctor and Joe, who explains to her that the situation has gotten extremely dangerous and they are both at risk given the fact that they are imposters. Joe begins to voice her frustration at the situation, but the Doctor notices a rock sticking out from behind the tapestry and he sees it as holding open a door to the tunnels. He realises that is why Grun nodded at him and tells Joe to help Islier convince Alpha Centauri whilst he goes to find Grun. Meanwhile, Grun arrives as Hepesh instructs the guard commander to prepare his men to launch a coup, but orders them not to hurt the king. Grun tries to get Hepesh to follow him, but when Hepesh ignores him, he tries to take him away by force. One of the guards attacks him, but Grun easily defeats him. However, Hepesh attacks him from behind, hitting him in the back of the head with a rock and knocking him out. Hepesh orders the guards to follow after him. A short while later, the doctor arrives and helps up Grun, who indicates that Hepesh attacked him and is leading a coup. The Doctor wonders how they will be able to stop Hepesh, and they suddenly hear Agador roar from nearby. 
which gives the doctor an idea and he takes the reluctant grunt with him to find the beast. Meanwhile, Joe, Islier and Sorg have managed to convince Alpha Centauri to vote in favour of the emergency powers, although Alpha Centauri admits it was under protest. Islier says that they must send word back to the Federation, but Alpha Centauri reveals that their transmitter to the orbiting ship was destroyed by someone. Islier sends Sork to use theirs and then asks Joe if she is certain that Earth will support her agreement in light of the presumed marriage pact to the king. Joe denies that there is any such pact, a fact that seems to upset Alpha Centauri, but the mood is darkened when Sorg reveals the Ice Warriors transmitter is also destroyed. Joe quickly says that her transmitter was also damaged in the crash landing, and they all agree that Hepesh is behind the sabotage. Alpha Centauri grows hysterical, saying that they will all die, and Joe and Islier frustratedly tell them to calm down, with Islier saying that their status as Federation delegates should keep them safe for the time being. Joe says the Doctor will know what to do, but admits that she doesn't know where he is. At that moment, Hepesh's men assault the throne room and a vicious fight ensues between them and the guards loyal to the king. The fight comes to an end when the king is captured after many of his men are killed. Hepesh enters and demands that he return to observing the ancient ways or he will be killed and the royal line will end. Hepesh then makes his way to the delegates room and demands that they all come with him to the throne room or the king will die. Left with no other choice, the delegates go to the throne room and after seeing that the king is alive, Hepesh tells them to leave and never come back. Suddenly, the Doctor enters with Grun and Agador, who he successfully managed to tame through hypnosis. The Doctor orders Hepesh to be placed under arrest for treachery and blasphemy. Hepesh refutes the claims, saying that he controls Agador and takes a torch from the wall to try and bend him to his will again, instructing him to kill the Doctor. However, Agador attacks him and fatally wounds him before he being driven off by the Doctor. Then King cradles the dying Hepesh in his arms, who apologises for his actions, saying he only wanted to save their culture and their world. Joe comforts the heartbroken king, but says that he must handle the current situation. The doctor returns and tells the traitors to lay down their arms, and the king pardons them, decreeing that the coup and Hepesh's plans will be kept secret. Later that evening, the doctor shows Joe the TARDIS, which the king had earlier ordered to be reclaimed. Joe says that she hopes it will take them back to Earth, and the doctor says their arrival on Peladon during such a critical time was too much of a coincidence, leading them both to realise that the Time Lords still have remote control of the TARDIS. Joe cheers him up by saying that they will get a chance to see the king's coronation before they leave, but as they turn to go, Agador shambles into the room. The doctor says that Agador has grown quite attached to him, and he goes to take him back to his pen. The king enters as he leaves and asks Joe to stay with him. She says that she can't and reveals that she isn't a princess, but he says it doesn't matter. He says he has to leave, but vows to win her hand, and she kisses him goodbye as the doctor returns, who informs the king that his court's officials are looking for him. Once they are alone, the doctor notices Joe holding back her tears and asks if she wants to stay, but she says that it would be best if she went back home. The doctor says that he is glad as he would miss her if she stayed and they make their way to the coronation. Out in the hallway, Islier and Alpha Centauri have met the real delegate from Earth. The doctor and Joe realise that they are in trouble and hurry back to the TARDIS, with Joe saying the doctor can take her to see Queen Victoria's coronation instead. They enter the ship, which dematerialises just as Islier leads the others into the room and they watched in stunned silence as it fades from sight. End of the story. So once again, the meddlesome TARDIS crew have saved the day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so as always, after that, we will go over to the trivia spot. So what news have you got for us this week? 
Cool. So the air date for the Curse of Peladon was the 29th of January to the 19th of February 1972. The writer was Brian Hales. This is the fifth of six stories written by Brian. He previously wrote Celestial Toymaker, Smugglers, The Ice Warriors and The Seeds of Death. We'll see his work again in his final story, The Monster of Peladon. Brian did also do the novelization for this story. Which is good to know. I always like when the writer does both. Absolutely. And his back catalogue is pretty good. It is. Mm-hmm. The director for the story is Lenny Main. This is the first directing outing for Lenny. We'll see his work again in The Three Doctors, The Monster of Peladon again, and The Hand of Fear. Two of those are actually pretty big uh, milestones in the show's history. They are. They are indeed. Now, Lenny died tragically in 1977. So he was in a dinghy on the English Channel with two other yachtsmen when it capsized and a search and rescue team were never able to find him. From a production standpoint, Curse of Peladon is actually a bit weird. So if you look this up on the TARDIS fandom wiki, Mm -hmm. it says that the previous story to this is the Sea Devils, which it isn't. We're discussing the Sea Devils next week this is the first time in doctor who where the stories have been broadcast in a different order than what they were made in so the sea devils was actually recorded first Hmm. and then this one but this one was broadcast first now i have a theory just based on the fact that the sea devils is going to be based on earth whereas this was based on another planet so this was all studio filming so maybe just the editing of the location filming for Sea Devils took a bit longer or something? Yeah, cause especially because Sea Devils is a six-parter. So. Yeah. Um, you know, this becomes quite common, particularly in TV shows now. Like we often hear, like, say, Firefly. Like, what order do you watch Firefly in and stuff like that? Yeah. It's quite common for things to be produced out of order, either intentionally versus broadcast order or unintentionally at the... Um, with a studio or whatever. This is the first time it happened in Doctor Who because up until now, like throughout the 1960s, there was such a narrow gap between when they finished recording and when the episode had to go out that the idea of having a story already fully done that you could air sort of in place of a different story doesn't work. It, you know, it just would never have happened. Especially when we always talk about like the budgetary constraints of the time period. Yeah, I mean, often episodes aired as little as two weeks after the studio recording being done. So, and that was back in the 1960s. So, so for this to happen, it's like this is the start of, you know, changes in production and stuff coming through for the show. This is the only original story, um, so only a story in the classic series, to feature the Ice Warriors that does not consist of six episodes. That is right. All of you are six parters. We've had two sixes, and we will have another six after this. Yeah. This is also the first third Doctor story not to have the Brigadier or any member of Unit. It also doesn't feature any scenes on Earth whatsoever, which for John Pertwee, who was confined to Earth for a long period of time, is is a big deal. Mm. I was about to say cl- uh, Colony in Space, but I was like, wait, no, the Brigadier part at the start and at the end. Yeah. Yeah. So this story has one of my favourite contributions to Doctor Who, mm-hmm. which is the Venusian lullaby. I love it. I'll be honest, I sometimes sing it to myself when I go to bed. It's just It just gets stuck in my head. 
I think part of the reason it gets stuck in my head is because it uses the tune of one of my favourite Christmas songs. So, the Venusian lullaby is essentially gibberish. Yeah. <laughs> to the tune of God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> But I love it. I love it so much. I think it's such a great contribution. I think John does a great job with it. There's actually a video that I will share um, on our Twitter after this episode goes live of this woman who sings the lullaby. It's hauntingly beautiful. Hmm. But she also sings the translation. So there's no official translation because what John says is a load of bollocks, right? We we know that the first line is "Close your eyes, my darling." At least uh, three of them. Three of them at least. Yeah. yeah. So she basically played around with that because yeah. I mean, right? I'll, I'll tell you one thing, right? So the words to it, there's actually one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There's like ten words in mm. the song uh, that just gets repeated over and over again. The main one being. Arun just gets repeated over and over again. But she basically took what we were told the translation was and she built a lovely, it's a lovely little piece around it. So I will share that because it's like one of my favorites. And I'm so glad that we now got to it. Isn't it any wonder that John Pertwee became Rosal Govich? <laughs> <laughs> now, John does claim that no one gave him any guidance, that he yeah. just made it up. Now, whether that's true, I don't know. But um, apparently, according to John, that was all him. He just made it up himself. So some people who were around in the 1970s or who are familiar with the history of UK politics may see an allegory in this story. It was basically created as an allegory to the UK joining the common market um, or the European common market, as it's called, which was highly topical at the time that this show came out. Hmm. And you know, obviously it became quite topical recently in recent years because of brexit like this and there's other the other show like yes minister and yes prime minister it's amazing when you go back and you see how relevant that stuff is because i actually watched a clip today from yes minister where uh, the character sir humphrey is outlining why britain uh joined the common market and it was essentially to create a disunited europe and he's like you know, we, we went in there to throw the Dutch against the Spanish, the Italians against the French. The Foreign Office is very happy. It's just like old times. <laughs> <laughs> so Alpha Centauri is an interesting design, um, whether it has six arms or four, Paddy. Mm. Um, <laughs> originally, was supposed to change color to reflect their mood, which would have been really interesting. I don't know how they were ever going to manage to pull it off. But that was the original idea, was that Alpha Centauri acted a bit like a mood ring. Probably some weird like CSO thing or maybe. Probably. And I'm kind of glad they didn't, to be honest, because uh, I think it's a great concept, but I don't think they had the technology to pull it off. To be fair, though, I think it would have just been the one colour throughout the entire fucking story. (laughs) (laughs) Which is panics to fuck. Yeah. Um, So Katie Manning and David Troughton, who plays the king, Mm -hmm. um, they actually had a bit of a thing. During the filming of this story, apparently they both liked each other mm. um, and they kind of started testing the boundary of that a bit, um, though apparently it didn't really go much beyond friendship. Mm. Uh, so there is a little bit of a parallel between Katie and David versus Joe and King Peladon. Mm-hmm. It was kind of noticed that Katie Manning's outfit in this 
is amazing. Mm. However, it's a bit more formal than Joe would usually wear. It's a bit extra. So it was Terence who added the dialogue to say that Joe was going on a date with Mike Yates. Yeah, because like, I hadn't seen the story in about 10 years and I'm like, does she get like a wardrobe train to reflect that she is like pretending to be a princess or no no she came out yeah. in the outfit and i imagine it may be that they were trying to give her a princessy looking outfit and they kind of worked backwards yeah from that so originally it had been contemplated that there would be a romantic relationship between joe and mike and so this was them kind of playing around with that still a little bit agador the sort of proto alf bear creature yeah. Um, was originally a bit more ape-like, um, but the finished costume looks more like a bear. And I do think that the the gargoyles of Agador, like the statues, look like Alf. Yeah, I I think like like I like Agador. He's I, cool. I know I do. Like I I actually like Agador looks kind of like I suppose for more modern uh, fans, if if anyone has ever watched The Mandalorian, it looks like essentially a bipedal version of the Mudhorn. Know, the creature that the Mandalorian kills. Yeah, but more furry. But oh yeah, way more in furry. In a sort of teddy bear kind of. Yeah. Um, like you, you kind of get the, because like they're the royal beasts of Paladon. A mudhorn cross with a Wookiee. Yeah, pretty much. Like, and like you, you, but you get the impression that it's almost like, um, like I, I love the way they're kind of treated the same way, like, you know, like that lions or dragons are treated in certain cultures around the world, you know, in the sense of like that they're noble animals, protectors, but also you know, there's a mythological edge to them as well. Mm. Yeah, very much so. So Alpha Centauri's costume, outfit, design, whatever, uh, Lenny was not happy with it. Uh, appalled is the word that was used. Um, apparently, the first time he saw the, car- the outfit, he said, it looks like a fucking prick. <laughs> It was incredibly and unambiguously phallic looking. Yeah. So they added a cloak to which he said, now it looks like a prick in a cape. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Which reading this, I'm just reminded of, I think it was the demons where like the brig starts saying the line that he feels like a spare prick at a wedding, (laughs) but he catches himself. (laughs) Oh, um, but um, Jesus, that that's just fucking brilliant. <laughs> Congratulations! That was just a prick in a cape. <laughs> oh God. Um. Also, it's kind of cool. In like we kind of talked about it off air, but uh, Alpha Centauri is, I suppose, like the first genderless character that we've come across in the sense of like. They are hermaphrodites, so they're neither male nor female. Yeah, and this is something that, just for context, we've kind of, well, I've certainly dipped in between what to refer to Alpha Centauri as. Mm -hmm. In the episode, the doctor specifically says it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because Joe was like, you know, he or she, because Joe's not quite sure, and the doctor says it, and explains that Alpha Centauri is a hermaphrodite. Alpha Centauri has a very high-pitched feminine voice. Yeah, so when Paddy was doing the summary, we kind of weren't sure whether to use they or it. And Paddy went with they because neither of us are particularly comfortable with it. Yeah. So we will probably continue using they 
I, I don't know. They, they didn't specify. The doctor just said it. Yeah, because like it's like with Cybermen, it's like okay, you know, they're again they're kind of genderless, so like we always just kind of refer to and them as Daleks as well as it. Mm. And we do. I think know- the difference between da- with Daleks and Cybermen though is that they're also robotic. Yeah. Um, which could be us being a little bit close-minded. Uh, but. Uh, but, 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 but remember, Daleks are not robots. Daleks are... But the, the, as in yeah, the robotic yeah, shell. The, the robotic shell, yeah. Whereas like, at least we know with the Ice Warriors, now it's more of a later edition. But you can tell like that the Ice Warriors themselves are male, unlike mm. unlike some of our other uh, species. Yeah. Anyway. So I think we'll, we'll go with they for Alpha Centauri, though, yeah. in the episode. Yeah. The Doctor does specify it. Mm-hmm. I don't know, calling someone an ace just feels weird to me. Anyway, on to our cast. So as King Paladon of Paladon... Okay, I, I'm going to divert a second, right? Yeah. Alpha Centauri is from Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri. That, that's the thing. Is there... Arcturus is from Arcturus. And Paladon is the king of Paladon. Paladon. Why did those three not have like i get the whole paladon of paladon i kind of get that yeah but like why is alpha centauri's name the alpha name of where alpha centauri is from um i i can all right see this is the weird thing like because you know in in, in you see it in certain shows and certain movies where certain characters like you know the kind of the bad boy or the rebel type characters will refer to the other members of the group as where they're from yeah but we're given the impression that this is actually alpha yeah. centauri's name uh, yeah and like i oh that's the thing i because I, if they were doing like delegate yeah alpha centauri meaning delegate from alpha centauri yeah his next year is called they're just yeah. calling him by his name yeah call, that's the thing the ice warriors are the only ones of the de- or like anyone like of standing like so like obviously there's the doctor from Earth and Princess Josephine of Tardis, but yeah it's Peladon of Peladon. Um, I still don't bother yeah. anyone but me. <laughs> well, I tell you, I, I tell you one thing like it was going to be confusing for the summary because like I just called him the king the entire time. Even yeah. Though, <laughs> even though everyone refers to him as Peladon, I'm like, nah, this is too fucking confusing. <laughs> I don't. On to our cast. So as King Peladon of Peladon, we have David Troughton. This is the third story that David has appeared in. Mm. We previously saw him in Enemy of the World. He was an extra. And he was also in the War Games. He was Private Moore. Mm-hmm. He won't appear again in Doctor Who for more than 30 years when he returns in the episode Midnight. Which is an episode that I will not give you my rating on at this point in time, so you'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> yeah. He's also done a wide number of audio stories, usually voicing the Black Guardian. I'm not familiar with that character, but he's voiced that character a lot. He uh, he comes into it during the Peter Davison era. Okay. Um, he's also done target novelization readings. He's done a whole back of them. And he has done two audio stories where he voiced the second Doctor, who was, of course, originally portrayed by his father, Patrick Troughton. And it's actually, like, in this story, you can really see the resemblance to... Patrick. Yeah, I'll be honest. The first time I saw him, I was like, hold on, hold on. Yeah, no, got it. Cool. Happy. Uh, David's non-who credits include David Copperfield, Our Mutual Friend, Crime and Punishment, Tales of Sherwood Forest, The The Canterbury Tales, Twelfth Night, Outnumbered, King Lear, and the one thing that I now recognize him from all the time, which is Sharp. Yep. 
uh, specifically Sharps Eagle and Sharps Rifles. Sharps Rifles and Sharps Eagle. Sharps Eagle, yeah. Hapesh is played by Jeffrey Toon. Now, this is Jeffrey's only television Doctor Who appearance, though he did appear in the film Doctor Who and the Daleks, and he played Temesis in that role. His non-Who credits include The Terror of the Tongues, The King and I, Yes Minister, The New Avengers, All Creatures Great and Small, Only Fools and Horses, Jeeves and Muster, Free Reelers, and The Apocalypse Watch. Jeffrey passed away in 2005. Islier is played by Alan Bennion. This is the second of three appearances in Doctor Who, all as different ice warriors. <laughs> he's just the ice warrior guy. And actually, he's like, you, you use the term ice lord, mm-hmm. um, who is like the sort of commander person uh, yeah. in the ice warrior hierarchy. And he plays ice lords the whole time. Um, so we previously saw him in The Seeds of Death, and we'll see him again in The Monster Peladon. I wonder if it's one of those things of where they're all from the same family line. Maybe. Maybe. Alan passed away in 2018. Now, Alpha Centauri is played by two different people. Okay, so in the suit, we have Stuart Fell. Now, Stuart was a stuntman in Doctor Who from 1971 to 1983. He regularly stepped in for John. He'll later step in for Tom Baker. What a name for a stuntman. Fell. (laughs) (laughs) So in this story, he was the guy in the suit. Um, He is credited as an actor in eight more stories, including The Monster of Paladin, Planet of the Spiders, The Ark in Space, The Android Invasion, The Brain of Morbius, The Mask of Mandragora, The Invasion of Time, and State of Decay. He also worked as a stunt coordinator on Who, like I said, but he also worked as a stunt coordinator on Blake 7, Superman, Aliens, and The Empire Strikes Back. Massive sci-fi cred there for Stuart Fell. The voice of Alpha Centauri is provided by Isan Churchman. Y-S-A-N-N-E. You want to go with Isan? Yeah. My apologies if I've gotten it wrong. It was the same as well, like Yvonne. Yeah. Um, this is the first of three stories where she provided the voice of Alpha Centauri. So she'll voice Alpha Centauri again in the Monster Peladon and in Empress of Mars. Now, when she did the voice of Alpha Centauri and Empress of Mars, she was 92 years old. She had retired from acting and came back specifically to voice that character in that episode. Mm-hmm. She also provided a voice in the story The Planet of the Spiders. Her non-Who credits include The Railway Children, The Archers, Othello, Crossroads, Softly Softly, Zed Cars, Madame Bovary, Alice in Wonderland, and Oliver Twist. Arcturus, who I'm just going to say right now, right? There is a book series called The Bone Season. And one of the main characters is called Arcturus Mazartum. And I've never heard of Arcturus as a name other than that until this story. <laughs> so every time someone said Arcturus, I just imagined um, a Raphite from the Bone Season. If you haven't read the series, very good. Highly recommend. Anyway. Um, I had a thing, sorry, where like with, with my issue with Arcturus was every time I kept saying it is, to the best of my knowledge, that is the first planet where General Grievous makes his appearance in the Star Wars uh, <laughs> yeah, in quite in quite possibly, like, and to just to detract away from this, the best version that that character has ever been is in that initial two thousand and three episode of Star Wars: The Clone Wars. It was fucking spooky. <laughs> so, Arcturus of Doctor Who is played again the guy in the facial prosthetic or whatever. 
is Dalek operator Murphy Grunbar. So Murphy had done eight different stories as a Dalek. He was also an operator for Mechanoid in The Chase. And Murphy passed away in 1991. The voice of Actorus is provided by Terry Bale. This is the second and final story that Terry contributes to. He was previously seen as a soldier in the Reign of Terror. Terry's non-who credits include Grange Hill, Softly Softly Task Force, Dixon of Doc Green, and Zedkars. Terry passed away in 2013. And there's one other thing there, just kind of, he's, he's not really a prominent character as such throughout the thing, but Grun, I believe, is played by Terry Walsh, who is John's primary stuntman. Which is interesting when you consider it was probably Stuart who was fighting yeah. him. In the <laughs> and just to also remind people that Terry Walsh is the poor fucker that was hit by a car and <laughs> fell into a quarry and got up straight away. <laughs> Good man, Terry. <laughs> <sighs> Crazy bastard. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for all that wonderful information. You are welcome. And we went off on random tangents as we were prone to do. Absolutely. So for those of you that are still listening, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) So we're now coming to the second half. Uh, We have our character discussion. So as always, we have the Doctor, the Companions of the Peace, any prominent characters, and the Dastardly Villains. So (laughs) this week we have, as always, the Doctor, the companions of Joe and Islir, uh, prominent characters of the King slash Peladon of Peladon, <laughs> presumably son of Peladon, <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, Alpha Centauri, and then the villains of Hepesh and Arcturus. So, the Doctor, what are your thoughts on him this time around? I actually really liked him in the story, uh, mm. for the most part. I loved the silent communication he had going with Joe. Um, <laughs> that was great. Because originally they were making eyes at each other. I was like, what the hell are they on about? I was like, oh, they noticed the blanket covering the thing or the tapestry. Mm. Because obviously they came out from behind a tapestry. And I was like, oh, look at you being intelligent. Um, I love also how quickly he adapted to the situation. I was like, oh, you're the representative of Earth. And he's like, yeah, of course I am. Although, I mean, if you think back to Colony in Space... Yeah. He is now doing here exactly yeah, what he gave out to the master for doing. doing absolutely. In Colleen's space. And like I mentioned it in trivia, the Venusian lullaby is one of my favorite contributions to Who. Mm-hmm. I absolutely adore it. My main negative with the Doctor in this is he's a bit racist. He makes immediate assumptions on the Ice Warriors based off his previous interactions with them. So these are two brand new people that he has never met before. We've never seen any indication that the Ice Warriors as a people have kind of like a hive mind or something like that. We've only ever dealt with like small groups of Ice Warriors. Yeah, because like so like the first time we meet the Ice Warriors, it's six of them on a ship. The second time, it's an invasion fleet. Yeah, the second time does have an invasion and that's true, but Mm. like... Here he meets two random ice warriors and is immediately suspicious. Yeah. And yeah, Joe finds the ice warrior tech or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you would think the doctor would realize that he also pushed 
store into the wall when the Agador thing fell down or Storg, whatever. Uh, Sorg. Sorg, that's it. Um, you think that he would notice that he also pushed, pushed him into the wall? <laughs> yeah. Like, it just came across as a little bit racist. And, like, even later on, when Arcturus is attacked, the doctor immediately goes to, well, you would know, you'd have the technology to do it, you'd understand mm. it, whatever. And it's like, well, technically so would Alpha Centauri, because yeah. they're part of the Federation. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, it just came across as a little bit racist. And he never really apologizes for the assumptions that he's made. <laughs> but, like, you see, it's, it's one of these things, right, is that... On one hand, you've got the fact that you know, up until now, all he's ever encountered is the the violent, warmongering side of Ice Warrior society. That, like you know, and he states that they're a warmongering race. Mm. But you kind of then have to take a look at the bigger scope. And it's like they're here as representatives of the Galactic Federation, which means, exactly which means that they're in an alliance with Earth, and like for God's sake, like Alpha Centauri. I can't imagine. That bunch of pricks. <laughs> um, trying to take over the world, taking over a world. But because like, that's the thing is, like, when we get to talk to Alpha Centauri, that really should um, oh, you know, stop the doctor on his tracks when it's like coming to these suspicions. Mm. And, and like, this, see, this is the thing like that. As the show proceeds, as the show goes on, mm. more stuff is added to the to the lore or to the canon, if you will. And when you look back at these older stories, it's like, like for example, no, apparently you know, the Doctor is meant to see, like your know, Time Lords can see all there is and all there ever was and all there's meant mm. to be and all that type of shit. And it's like, you know that the Galactic Federation is essentially meant to be like the Starfleet Federation from yeah. what I can gather. So therefore... This would be like in his mind if the Klingons actually joined the Federation as opposed to being allied to them. But here, yeah, they're, actually, mean, they're, the, they're charter members. Like what he's assuming here, right, is that the Vulcans have gone rogue against the Federation. Yeah, <laughs> that's essentially what he's implying. And I don't know, like I mean, I think it's an understandable thing for someone to make. You know, his two experiences have been negative. Um, I think I just have a concern with an entire race being written off by the Doctor based off previous interactions when like, the two other examples are the Daleks and the Cybermen. Mm-hmm. The Daleks he knows were bred to be that way. Yeah. And the Cybermen he knows have a sort of combined cybernetic hive mind Yeah, to be that way. Whereas the Ice Warriors seem to be completely autonomous in their own right and so to make that assumption just kind of rubbed me the wrong way uh, yeah and like i think had it been like that the ice warriors were there were the first to arrive and all mm. and all he ever encountered was the ice warriors on yeah then the hesitancy is understandable but the but the pres- the constant presence of alpha centauri should really make him think twice because yeah. alpha centauri seems to put great stock in his lear yeah um, so that was my only sort of negative was I would have liked to have seen like a proper apology. Sorry for thinking it was you coming. Because Joe does. Joe has a great relationship. Yeah. But is there later on? Mm. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. I just would have liked to have seen the doctor sort of realizing that like 
he had done what what the brigadier did in the Silurians. Yeah. Assuming they're all one way when you're presented with evidence to the contrary. Mm-hmm. But yeah, over other than that, I, I really liked him in this. That was just that one small, like sort of niggly back of my brain thing. Um and that's being very nitpicky to be honest. Um I also have one thing that I'm not particularly fond of, but when you said about all the nodding, I can <laughs> I just had this like thing in my head kind of going, you know, like the very soft nodding. I'm like, okay, there's a lightsaber about to appear here and shit's gonna go down. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, I just yeah I want to do a super cut now of all the nodding in this I just like have the return of the Jedi music playing over it no but so I suppose the positive things first like I there are so many aspects of the doctor that, that I love displayed here like falling into the role of the diplomat so easily it's great mm. his detective skills mm. trying to utilize them his MacGyvering skills by putting together the little so the device he uses is essentially it's like he attaches like a little spinning mirror to the mm. top of his sonic screwdriver so he just continually flicks it so that the the mirror is constantly going and then when he actually it's also making a noise yeah the sonic uh, hits off it so it's like yeah anyone, <laughs> anyone hypnotized by me kick <laughs> um and then now it's like I like how he spared Grun's life because he mm. knew that it was potentially against the law because he was told trial by combat is a fight to the death. And we've seen in other franchises where the person grants life to the mm. defeated person. It's like you're going against the law. You'll just be punished anyway. And now in terms of the racism thing, I can see where you're coming from, all right. But... See, like, there's a, there's this huge air of like a who done it. This is essentially like a who done it, mm. and that type of thing. I suppose, like, if you if you know someone's like a bad guy, or if you know someone is coming from like a bad background, yeah, it is kind of typecasting a small bit, or it's you know, there's racism to a certain extent. But I do like how once it's revealed, um that the Ice Warriors are more or less the good guys here or mm. a, a common interest. He doesn't seem to have any, second, any more second thoughts about them. Yeah, that's true. And like, I think that's... Now, there's a really interesting thing here in the sense of, and I want to get your thoughts on this, the way that the ending of episode three is cut, okay? Mm. So what happens is, is Arturus' uh, thing comes out and... Gun. The word he's yeah, in for yeah, his gun. gun. Yeah, thing. His gun. <laughs> he, his gun comes out, but then the final shot is the doctor looking up at the parapet and Sorg turning to what looks like Peladon, mm. and then firing. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, is that still that last kind of vestige of doubt that he has to look to the Ice Warrior first? But see, it's. it's I, I think it's, so. It's, I think it might be. Yeah, because it's cut so weird. Because, like. And we I, don't I, know if the doctor yeah. knows it was Arcturus. Yeah, and again, like I think that's a really, really, that's a really, really cool thing that actually kind of leads into my overall is that up until the very last moment, like okay, we know that Islir seems to be on the up and up, mm. but we don't know about Sorg. Mm. And like I, I actually I did like that little twist, uh, but the thing that kind of stood out for me, and it's a thing that I I I never like it, and it's a very bad flaw in the Doctor's character. It's well, I didn't tell them what I was doing. So when it fucks up, it's their fault. 
when he's hypnotizing Agador. Mm. And Agador is still not under. And Agador is like, Rrr. and then Joel comes like, don't worry, Doctor, I'll save you. And then he gives out to her for the fact that she didn't know what he was doing. It's much like going back to the Terror of the Autons when she saw something on what it looked like on fire. So she tried to put it out. Or like Jamie trying to rescue the doctor in the web of fear. No, no, he did. He did apologize. Like he did apologize, and he did commend Joel for her her brave actions and trying to save him. Mm. That is the saving grace. But I, it really, oh, it bugs me. It bugs me, but doesn't bug me as much as it did in other stories. And I'll explain why. Okay. So he says, "Oh, you idiot!" Right, which I hate anyone calling Joel an idiot. It really gets my goat going. Mm. But it's more sort of. You know, just resigned exasperation. Do you know, like, you fucking it. Like, the way I would say to you. Yeah, I, I, I was actually just, gonna, I was going to give you that out there a second. <laughs> I was yeah, going to give you that out. But was the way you'd say to her, for like, oh, for fuck's sake, you tit, what were you doing? And the reason why I give him an out is he doesn't hold it against her. Mm. It's that initial exclamation, which comes from the fact that she was running in with a torch and he was saying over and over again, stop. It's fine. I'm fine. So in this particular instance, because he like starts like, oh, you idiot. Like, it was fine. And then he looks up and he's like, thanks. Do you know? Like, he immediately just has that sort of, like, frustration vent. But he doesn't hold it against her. Mm-hmm. And he's not, like, being, like, the way he was in Autons. Yeah. Where he didn't let it go. Yeah. Do you know? This was just like, oh, for fuck. Yeah. Th- thanks for trying. Do you know? And it immediately was on. So I don't mind it as much. It is still annoying that people's default word for Joe is idiot, though. <laughs> but, and like, which is a shame, like, because like, for the rest of the runtime of this four episodes, bar that little 30, 20 second piece, like, their relationship is great. Like, he, mm. he never belittles her. He nope. trusts her to help. With the, he sends her to get Islier to help convince Office and Tori. He doesn't say like, oh, tell them this, you know, like, and do this, do whatever. It's just like, do what you can, like what you, Joe Grant, mm. can do to help swing the tide of stuff. He doesn't um, try and, like, I love the fact that he doesn't try and coach her. Like, this kind of, kind of more leads into Joe type thing. Mm. But he doesn't have to coach her to play the role of, like, the royal observer. She just fits into it so naturally. He doesn't have to give her any tips on etiquette or anything like mm. that it's great so yeah overall bar that little uh, thing that little statement and i suppose yeah as you kind of pointed out the um, the, the the racist part of it everything it's it's good here like, he's mm. very good here mm. so that leads jo- us on to joe yes. <laughs> quite so, naturally can we have some more princess josephine please <laughs> yeah I, I do like princess josephine yeah. I will say one thing, right? Yeah. Before we get into Joe proper. Yeah. The only negative I have about Joe in this story. Mm-hmm. Girl, you can do so much better than Mike Yates. <laughs> He's an I, asshole. I was like, what, where, what negative? Like, where the fuck is she going? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, you can do so much better. <laughs> uh, make an honest man out of Benton. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. No, I was going to say that's Yates' job, but Benton can also do better than Yates. Yeah, exactly. Uh, No, yeah, no. Like Joe's excellent here. Like she's utterly fearless. Like when like 
she has she has no backup. Like she's never met the Ice Warriors before in her life. And to be honest, like they're intimidating fuckers. Grant no an ice warrior looks like a walking avocado. But they're they're still But she also looks like she's five but nothing. Yeah, and like they're still kind of fucking intimidating. And like Islier is a very when I I have a comment about him, but he is a sort of an intimidating character. Mm. And she also like, you know, she has no fucking fear in chasing off Agador, the royal beast of Peloton <laughs> with a fucking torch. Mm. Um and as well the walking along the window ledge. Or mm. like the, the outside of it in the fucking storm. Not a bother to her. It's great. Um, I I loved every like I loved everything about her, including the fact that even though she was there was an attraction between her and Peladon, she doesn't get like moon eyed over him to the extent that that she's not being objective. Like yeah, like do you remember all the way back in Reign of Terror, where Barbara was had like an attraction to Leon. And like she wouldn't hear anything bad being said about him because of the fact that there was an attraction there. Yeah, I will get a bit. I'll get into the relationship between her and King Paladon when we talk about the king. I think. Um, I think with Joe here is I think this is really Joe's story. Yeah, because Joe is the main one driving the investigation. Joe goes off behind the tapestry up onto the ledge to see what was happening. Joe's the one that found their way into the Citadel in the first place. Joe's the one that while the doctor's playing a diplomat, Joe was off by herself running the investigation. It's all Joe. Yeah. And like this is a, a great example of companion driving plot. Well, it's companion driving plot. It's Joe's background as a unit agent mm-hmm. being leveraged. The only caveat I'd have to her on her investigation piece is remember to close the lid. Yeah. <laughs> if you'd remember to close, the, although in fairness, the other side of it is we get we still get to see Joe's trusting nature. Hmm. So she found the piece that the doctor told her they were looking for. You know, whoever had this is trying to kill um, Arcturus. She found it in the ice warrior room. Mm-hmm. And then she tries, you know, she escapes from them, and then she bumps back into them again. Yeah. She doesn't scream her head off. No. She doesn't, you know, fight them tooth and nail or whatever. She lets them explain. And she actually listens as Islier explains how the technology works hmm. and whatever. And I like that because if we compare her to um, last week, and Day of the Daleks, where yes, she was trusting, but she wasn't listening. Whereas here, she sort of actively listens, which I think is better. I was actually going to say, like, is this a lesson learned from last week? Because, like, of the ice warriors, all she has is the doctor's word on them. Yeah. But when she's alone, and like we saw the last week, like all she had was the controller's word about. Now, granted, she saw some action to mm. back up those comments by the controller. Whereas here, all she just has is that intimidation factor. But yeah, no, I think she, like, I think it's a very nice character development learn uh, lesson learned type thing. Yeah. Also, massive kudos for climbing a cliff in that getup, mm-hmm. or for doing anything with the sheer number of rings she wears. <laughs> but they're great for gripping onto stuff, you know. <laughs> they're massive. She has a ring on every single finger, and they're massive. And this is something I actually noticed. When we get to Sarah Jane, Sarah Jane wears lots of rings as well. 
Yeah, not as like, many as Chodo. I wear one. <laughs> I, and only because I found it last night. I, I, I always get the impression like, that Joe is just ready to throw down in like a bare knuckle boxing match. Well, not so much bare knuckle like, but... <laughs> um, but as well, if you think about it, nobles have a tendency to wear lots of jewellery. So I think having lots of rings... Very oh yeah, but like... It, it it's interesting how her get yeah. up for going on a date with my gates fit perfectly into this particular situation. Yeah. I also loved her hair. Mm. Just honestly, I wasn't a big fan of Joe's hair up until now because it's like sort of like this weird, nah, like someone attacked it with scissors. It, do, do what it is. It's a <laughs> this is gonna sound fucking horrible, but it, it's very early like Paul Weller from the Jam fucking haircut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whereas here it's nice, it's curled. Yeah, yeah. Th- this is Joe's story. Of all the stories we've seen so far, I think this is definitely Joe's. Team fashion hour. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cool. And so then we have our story-based companion of Islier. Yes. And, you know, given the way we've had Ice Warriors up until now, Mm -hmm. if we're sort of looking at things from the Doctor's perspective, who would have thought that we would have an Ice Warrior in our companion section? And I fucking loved it. Mm. I, yeah, I thought it was a fantastic twist, um, and it, it's like I wouldn't like I wouldn't even call it a twist, like, but it's just a very nice plot development, mm. and it's like, especially because, so it's kind of hard to describe, but the way that ice lords move, mm. because they're not encumbered by the armor, they have this very kind of like, it's almost like a theater actor. Like they just kind of like they don't stalk into the room; they stride very purposely with like great noble bearing. That's because they've got really big feet that must be really hard. Yeah, to yeah, 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 way to undersell the fact that. I'm <laughs> but like, I love the fact that even though that that's the way he kind of appears, he 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 he's actually pretty down to earth, and I was going to sound really really bad. It's my dad humor coming out. He seems like a pretty chill individual. <laughs> I would agree. Yeah. Like, A, I like the fact that, like, when, bear in mind, the last time we saw the Ice Warriors in the time frame of the show was, like, what, three years prior? prior? Mm, two and a half to three years? About two, yeah, because they were the doc, they were, the last time we saw them was Patrick's last season. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've had two full seasons since then. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think. Now, yeah, so we're like two and a half to three seasons ago. So two and a half yeah. to three years ago was the last time we saw them. And I think to show the fact that like just because we've seen Ice Warriors who are bad does not mean they are all bad. Mm. <laughs> I like that. I think it's something that Doctor Who and, you know, it's something that I hear Norman John talk a lot about on Mission Log. It's the idea of a monoculture mm-hmm. where everyone in a culture is exactly the same. Yeah. And I'm kind of glad that we see here that that is not always the case. Yeah, the Doctor has had run-ins with, you know, small groups who want to take over Earth and with a larger group that want to take over Earth. But here we have a delegate and a very good delegate. Mm. He handles situations very well. He doesn't get overly emotional about something. He assesses the situation. He works well with others, you know. I would say, like, you know, I kind of want him on my team. Do you know, like if you're if you're doing something, you kind of want him in your corner. Absolutely. Like, I, I see. Do you know who he kind of reminds me of? Colonel Lethbridge Stewart. So, Web of Fear Brig. Yeah. 
I would agree. I would agree in a big way because even when he thought the doctor was the one to damage Arcturus. Yeah. That was based off the evidence presented him to at the time, not based on like the doctor, on any preconceived notions. Because the other thing here is that Isler never mentions like, oh, the doctor is an enemy of the ice warriors. He never mentions mm. that his species had any interaction with the doctor before, which I like. Because mm-hmm. they just deal with each other on an individual no, level. To to be fair, the doctor has essentially fucking slaughtered every ice warrior that he has come across. True. But I like the fact that they're dealing with each other on an individual level and yeah. Islier does that with no preconceptions. Yeah. Do you know, he is a like I said, he's a very good delegate. And I actually love the dynamic that he sort of builds up with Joe. He lets her lead when she needs to. He fully supports her. Even though she's not technically meant to have a role, you know, actively speaking, she's meant to be an observer. Mm-hmm. He fully involves her in everything. He trusts her. He follows her guidance, does what she asks. I think he's a fantastic addition. Yeah. Like, like, and the thing is, like, he doesn't try, as you say, he doesn't really take things over, like, as his status. Because, mm-hmm. like, as you like said, like, Joe's only an observer. And I get the impression that he's, like, a senior delegate. Yeah. I, I, something tells me that this is like this federation is the sol system outwards so mm-hmm. like the, the nine planets or like the eight planets whichever we want to view it now they're like the, they're like the the, the core council mm-hmm. so i'd say that he would be like a like the senior one there but no again yeah like it's just like and had alpha centauri not been alpha centauri <laughs> <laughs> We'll get to Alpha Centauri in a few minutes. Yeah, like, I uh, think like that's just, again, he wouldn't, it would be a committee thing. But I like as well how he doesn't, like, he and, like, they have power. Alpha Centauri doesn't have weapons. Yeah. No. He could have very easily made it a military issue, made it a show of strength, and he doesn't. You know, the doctor goes off to do his thing. And Islier and Joe go to convince Alpha Centauri of what's happening. And Alpha Centauri says, I'm voting yes under protest. And he's like, cool. Yeah. And yeah, because like, we've seen other stories like where characters have like tried to put like, you know, okay, the, what is this? The, the science division or like, the diplomacy has failed this time now for the military to, to step yeah. into things. Like but they I- don't go after, like he doesn't go after Hapesh. He is continuing to do it from the political sphere, which is great. I really like Isler. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think I'm trying to think I want to see him again. <laughs> I'm trying to think what my favorite moment of Isler is, and I think it's when he starts questioning Joe hmm. and he reveals it's just all like to gauge what her, her actual intentions are, because hmm. he says like according to our policy, according to Federation Charter, it has to be a unanimous vote to make an action. I voted to stay. Yeah, and again, and again, it's like out of like you like yeah, it says courtesy for the doctor saving him, but also, you know, there's something going on here. I also love as well how, and I'm going to get to this with Alpha Centauri, how he was the one who kind of was like, "So, you're going to marry the king, are you?" Yeah, <laughs> the way he just sort of like you. Know, so will Earth actually like follow what you're saying? Just given your situation, and you could tell that like. He was kind of enjoying it. I got the sense he was enjoying it just a little bit. <laughs> There's actually, um, oh, 
there's a great line here, which is, oh yeah, as as Alpha Centauri is having like this like fucking meltdown to Sorg, who's just kind of going, what the fuck? Like, Islir says, uh, Arcturus was an unattractive person, Princess, but I think I preferred his cold logic to the hysteria of Centauri. <laughs> and he's just... It's such a great duo. Oh, Big God. finish. We need a spinoff of yeah. Islir and Joe. Absolutely. As like a Holmes and Watson type thing. <laughs> They'd be brilliant. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. So we'll tip away into the prominent character section. Cool. So we have Paladon of Paladon and we have Alpha Centauri of Alpha Centauri. <laughs> I, I just I was I was I'm Paladon of the planet Paladon, son of Paladon and Mary from Earth. <laughs> I, I was wondering, it's like, does his mother have like a normal Earth name or like I was half yeah. expecting to be, and my mother's name is Earth. Yeah. What? You mean she's from Earth? No, no, her name she is Earth. Like, okay, <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, God. So should we do Paladon or Paladon first? Yes, we should do Paladon or Paladon. We should do Pop first. I have major concerns about his leadership abilities. Oh, huge. Absolutely huge. Like, I, go on. I was, I was going to say, because as the story progresses, you really do see that he's just a boy. Yeah. And I, the, like, because I think when Torbus is his, so yeah, it's Hepesh is the high priest and Torbus yeah. was like his Chancellor. Chancellor. And because Torbus obviously supported his plans, he, there was the confidence there, which was like, you know, he was saying, Hepesh now, Hepesh do this and shut mm-hmm. up Hepesh and three bags full of Hepesh. But the minute Torbus is gone, the minute his support system is gone, it's like, well, what should I do? And I don't know what I, I need help. And it's yeah, he just he does get a he is just a boy. Like he clearly relied so heavily on both advisors because you can tell he has a great relationship with Hepesh. Yeah. And I love I actually think it's very sweet when he recalled like I imagine from the way he described that his father passed away when he was quite young. Mm. Is the feeling I'm getting. No, passed away or was done in. That's the thing that's never kind of brought up. I would go with passed away. I didn't get any sense that his father was killed or anything. I didn't get any sense of that. Well, the only reason I the only reason I make that statement is because he says that Torbus and his father were trying to remove the religious laws from Peladon. Mm, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I, I didn't. I didn't pick up a, a potential. Yeah. No. No. It's like assassination I, from that though. Yeah. No. We we only know that Hepesh killed Torbus, but like, yeah. I think maybe he just took advantage of the fact that yeah, Peladon. Yeah. So died. I get the feeling that Peladon died when that. Peladon Senior died when our current Peladon was quite young. Yeah. Maybe, like, definitely, like, his early teens, I would say, if not a bit younger. And because he says that his mother tried to help him mm-hmm. be a good king. So you kind of get the feeling that she was acting as queen regent. Mm. And I kind of get the sense that she passed away somewhat recently, which yeah. is why he's now. Because like they call him king, but he hasn't actually been coronated yet, which is something that's completely weird. Um, so I kind of understand. But like when he tells the story about how when Hebesh and um, Tobias brought him into the throne room mm-hmm. and sat him on the throne and stood beside him, 
it's very sweet. Um, and it's actually a lovely scene the way he describes it because Hepesh gets like Hepesh is like, yeah, like I'm here for you. Like yeah. the problem is he relies on it way too much. Yeah, he cannot make a decision on his own. Like I'm sorry, you have a foreign delegate ignorant of a law about being in a particular place. You're the king. Mm-hmm. You can grant diplomatic immunity if you want to. He could have made that whatever he wanted, but he lets Hepesh walk all over him and then offers this cowardly out of trial by combat. Mm. Do you know, which is just, I'm like, dude, what the hell? And then, you know, later on, when Hepesh is exposed, he won't do anything without the support of the Federation, even though he knows they can't get involved. Like, they shouldn't be getting involved. It's only because I think, to be honest, I think it's Isler realizes how weak a king mm. Paladon is. Yeah. That he's like, okay, we're here. Let's help in the capacity that we can. Um, And, you know, I don't think that was an easy choice for Isler to make. But I, I suppose the, the thing he kind of pointed out there, going, like, he never, and it's the, I think it's maybe the fact that it could be a mistake in the writing is that he's not king yet, even though everyone no. calls him king. Yeah. So, to, yeah, as a heir apparent, the regents would have control of stuff. Mm. He wouldn't have the the ability to overturn them, but he never says that to anyone. Like he he yeah. never he never gives that sort of out. And it's like, it, I'm just reminded of a line for, I think it's uh, coming to America. It's like, it's the laws of our country. Who am I to change it? And just like, I thought you were the king. Yeah. Um, the other side of it that also plays into his youth and the fact that I think he has this sort of, I won't say ivory tower, but stony tower <laughs> view of the world. He's so like a Disney character and that he mm. falls in love in two minutes like dude you had two very short conversations with this person <laughs> yeah i know she's like the only woman you've seen other than your mother because we don't see any other woman in the citadel because they're bared but like that's a bit much it's a little bit much <laughs> and i i just on that i think it's i do like the fact that when she says but i'm not a princess he goes it doesn't matter I like that. Yeah, because that, that that's coming like. at the end of the episode where yeah. he's gotten to know her a bit and seen her in action a bit. But like, dude, like their second conversation, I think you should marry me. Like, yeah. It's creepy. It's creepy. I, I honestly, I, I suppose like um, real life marrying it, I couldn't see Joe staying for him. No. I think, I think Joe had a very real connection with him. Mm-hmm. I think it could have developed into more, but not in the time frame that she was given, and not with what he was asking of her. No, because he was basically saying, "My mother is gone. My two advisors are gone. I need somebody else to advise me." <laughs> he needed a woman behind the throne that, in his culture, would get very little respect whatsoever. And <laughs> actually. Um, sorry, just to go all the way back to the doctor, I like the fact that he gave Joe the option to stay. Yeah, because this this ending sequence kind of reminded me a bit of the Mitmakers. A bit, yeah. 
Like the Mythmakers had something very similar. Yeah, where which Vic, I hated then as well. Yeah, which Vic, you know, stayed behind for Troilus. Um, I completely forgot his name recently, and a guy on the Facebook group uh, reminded me, and I was like, "Ah, thank you, perfect." Um, but yeah, no, so like in the sense of, uh, he offered her to stay, even, and he admits it that he would have been heartbroken to leave her behind, but he, he, I suppose, has learned from his own experiences, like to give them the choice. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I couldn't see that relationship working out if she had stayed, and Joe was right to not stay. Yeah. Um. Then we have <laughs> the super panicky drama hermaphrodite <laughs> that oh. is Atlas and Tori. Oh, would you just shut the fuck up already? <laughs> like that that sequence, you know, like you know, the hysteria of her, like, the hysteria of uh, Centauri, and just the two of them, like Joe's like Centauri, and like Islier's like Centauri. <laughs> oh no! Oh, like you do, you do sort of imagine, like, dude, calm down, or you're gonna wet yourself. Yeah. <laughs> like, the one thing I love about Centauri that we're... First of all, Centauri creates great moments. Mm. That moment with Islier, for example, is phenomenal. I think definitely quote of the episode. Yeah. With the exception of the song, that's its own thing. Yeah. Quote of the episode. Um, I love how Centauri was so disappointed when they learned there wasn't going to be a wedding. <laughs> but it would have been a great occasion. Um, it was so sad and I'm like literally two episodes ago you were agreeing with Arcturus that it was incredibly inappropriate for there to be a wedding between Pelinod and Earth during this current process and now she did or like they just seemed so like gutted <laughs> that it wasn't going to happen like I actually admit I'll admit right I got a small bit confused when like Islier said your 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 upcoming marriage or your approaching wedding and I was like oh wait he's just like he's busting her balls like yeah. it, like it's not I thought like it was like wait no are you forcing her to fucking marry him now no, <laughs> no it's, it was oh, him yeah. going what the fuck yeah. are you doing yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and like I said I think he, I think Islier could have enjoyed mentioning it yeah. because of Joe's reaction I think he was like yeah I him. think my favorite Alpha Centauri moment is like when Joe's like, okay, all in favor of staying and like she puts it up her hand, is Lear and Zorg put up theirs and Alpha Centauri just kind of looks in, in from the middle of the two ice warriors and just puts up one of hers and just going, I just want to let you know that this is under protest. <laughs> and like, but like Alpha Centauri is like a consummate diplomat in the sense of like we're not going to like, they're like <laughs> the Futurama, the neutral planet. It was like, it was like I will say one thing in Alpha Centauri's defense, though. Yeah. And this goes back to King Paladon being a moron. Mm-hmm. King Paladon kept saying, the delegates are safe. The dele-. He has no fucking clue what's going on. He can't he- guarantee their safety. What He didn't assign extra guards to them. No. He didn't do anything. So Centauri's paranoia and like desire to leave is completely justified. <laughs> like, completely. <laughs> Although, like, I will say that Centauri, to an, a, another, an actual more serious negative aspect of that character, is very, very elitist. Yes. Because she keeps referring to Paladon as a barbaric world. Yeah. Now, they're clearly in, I suppose, Paladon's version of, like, the medieval period. Mm. Because all the weapons are steel based yeah like there's no 
there's no signs of advanced technology. Everything is feudal. Candles and... Yeah, everything is feudal. And she continually refers to them as barbaric. And it's the one thing, I it fucking pisses me off. And it's like, whenever you hear about this, like, especially, you know, look at, like, Earth's history. And it's like, oh, you know, colonialism. And it's like, oh, these... Age, like, like even if you go back to the Aztecs, the Aztecs were viewed as a savage people. No, did they do some horrible things? Absolutely, they practiced slavery, they practiced human sacrifice, they practiced all this other shit. Okay, which was to my to a lot of, to modern standards and as to just anyone, it's fucking horrible. But without the use of fucking horses or without anything like that, they built roads, they built pyramids, they built fucking huge structures, waterways, the whole lot. They had their own form of medicine. They had us. They're not fucking savages. They're not barbarians. Just because you won. So that yep. fuck that that shit pisses me off. Here we have a society. Like sorry, <laughs> just no, I'm, on. I'm on a bit of a soapbox here. And I was like, here we have a society that yes, okay, they're still feudal. They, I mean, Christ Almighty, they have a trial by combat death penalty as such. Yep. It's like. But we can see like that they have fucking laws, they have sciences, they have all this other shit. It's just that they're not caught up to you yet. They're they're adv- more, some in some ways they're more advanced than you are in certain ways. So yeah, that's I fucking hate it. The thing as well, I, it sort of reminds me again. I was going back to like, the Star Trek comparison because obviously the Star Trek Star Trek also has a federation. Yes, the way the Vulcans in Enterprise mm. treat humans, or the way the Vulcans in Deep Space Nine humans yeah. um, <laughs> like the way vulcans are often presented as this snooty looking down your nose i think that's why i like is better is that alpha centauri is the consummate diplomat in the sense of they will not get involved hmm. they have a charter that they must follow yeah. however i wouldn't want to join centauri's federation no if i was someone from peladon no. that's what you think of me get the fuck off my planet yeah Whereas it, uh, that's where I think Islier is better. Yes, he is more decisive, mm-hmm. but any comments he makes about the way the Peladonians do things is always said with respect. Like he also thinks they're primitive. He thinks the whole idea of Agador's fucking bollocks. Mm-hmm. Like he agrees with all of that, but he's not as condescending about it compared to Centauri. I like. As well, see, this is going to be, it's un, un, obviously unthought of at the time, but coming up into the Fourth Doctor's era, when there are certain revelations made about Mars, the Ice Warrior's home planet, mm. you can see where the idea of mythology is, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's a fucking spook story, you know? Yeah, but like, I think possibly where it comes from with Islier versus Centauri is mm. perhaps the Ice Warriors are closer to that barbaric hmm. past, that warlike past, than Centauri's people are. Because Centauri's people kind of remind me of the Asgard. Yeah. So far beyond and above everybody else. Except without the active involvement part that the Asgard have. <laughs> Do you know? And, um, and, like, whereas Centauri seems to have no problem tearing all the Peladonians with the same brush at least the Asgard will fucking give credit to the Tauri where credit is yeah. due yeah <laughs> do you know what it is in this particular story mm-hmm. Islir is Thor yep yeah. and 
Centauri is any one of many Tokra. No, no, the Tolan. The Tolan. <gasps> she, that, that's who she is. Yeah. She's head Tolan, pain in the ass. <laughs> no, Norm, I know that you're listening. You're, you're going through Stargate, so hopefully this makes sense to you. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no. That, that makes perfect sense. She yeah. is the Tolan. Yeah. This sort of holier than thou bullshit. Whereas Islier is like, okay, like, you think what? All right. Okay, how do we deal with this? <laughs> we don't like snobs here at the time traveling team. <laughs> no, we don't. Yeah. Uh, Shall we move on to our villains? Yes. So we have Arcturus and Hepesh. Who would you deem to be the primary villain of this piece? So, like, it's. Oh, something popped into my head where. Uh, you might be able to help me. It's like where, like, you know, you think that someone's the villain, but it turns out that someone was like, it revealed like two or three movies down the line that they were the actual villain because they were the one whispering sweet nothings into the ear. Oh, yeah. uh, um, I would say that the the out and out villain is Arcturus. Yeah. Because, Whereas Hepesh is just the more visible. Yeah. So, because. I have very little notes on Arcturus, to be honest. I primarily have one. So I just want to do Arcturus first. Yeah, because, like, see, like, this is the thing. Like, we normally save the primary villain to the end. But because he's so in the shadows, there's not a whole lot to say about him. Hmm. Other than he's a sly little bastard. He's creepy as fuck. Yeah, he really he's is. He's creepy looking. Like, you know, they say, like, oh, behind the sofa type things with Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. I have very rarely come across a Doctor Who monster that I would deem to be a behind the sofa type thing. If I saw him when I was like six years old, I would be not behind the sofa, I'd be up the fucking stairs. <laughs> <laughs> Away from yeah. the telly. Because as fast it, as possible. He, like, he's like a shrunken head version of Medusa in that weird fucking pot of his. Yeah. Um, like, And I think it's like, we know that, like, so he's, it's, it was said in the episode that the Ice Warriors and the people of Arcturus's planet were enemies. Hmm. Now, looking at the fucking design of his life support system, it's like a it's like a fucking weird blocky type thing. And this is the beauty of it is that I completely forgot that he had a gun because yeah. every, so much other shit is going on. But they set it up at the beginning that he does. Yeah, that's which the, is great. But that's the thing like they set it up at the beginning because so much other shit happens. Like even with the virtue of watching it back to back. Now I watched it over four nights, you know, but hmm. I watched all in one go. You watched all in one go. I fucking forgot that that he had a gun. So like throughout the entire thing, you kind of view him as like this fucking helpless entity that he's in the life support system, but he's a fucking crafty bastard. Uh, I think the thing about Arcturus is that if you watch the episode again, mm-hmm. you can tell right from the off that Arcturus is shady because they set up everything. And this is the thing about this story: they set up everything so well he is the one who shows that he does have weapons yeah like Centauri says they'll defend themselves I think Centauri meant we will call in from our ships mm-hmm. whatever whereas Arcturus is like no fuck y'all <laughs> and like doesn't just present the weapon proves his point by destroying some pottery yeah and Arcturus is also the one who is constantly pushing for them to leave mm-hmm you know, so like Centauri pushes for them to leave out of fear and panicky paranoia. Arcturus is just pushing for them to leave 
And when you walked back over it, like even just from, you know, um, when Islier explains that wouldn't have killed him. Yeah, it's just a component. Yeah, it would have been uncomfortable for him for a while. But he wouldn't have died. But I would see the beauty of that. Then is right. Is that did he? You're kind of left guessing. Okay, there's two options here. One, he is the bad guy. Or two, he convinced someone to take it out in order to still get, force the point of getting off the planet. Because even up until the end, as I said earlier, the very end of episode three, he puts out his gun and Sorg turns to the king and fires. Yeah. It just so happened that Arcturus was was behind the king. So like, even then, you're still fucking contemplating, is Sorg gone rogue or is Arcturus mm. the bad guy? It's it's fucking pretty. it's almost like for anyone that's watched Braveheart is when like the, the scene where William Wallace is in the forest and the two new arrivals in the camp are also kind of like in the forest with him and they're stalking him and it looks like the, the fucking wacko is going to be the one to kill him but it turns out he's the one that actually saves him um, But it, I do wonder what Taurus's plan was with drawing his weapon was he banking on the fact that other people may have forgotten that he has a weapon and he was going to shoot and said that he saw Sorg do it. Because yeah, he's kind of exposing himself by hmm. by doing that. Like. like, I'm sure there was a plan in place. But I'm just trying to figure out what the hell would it have been. The only thing I can think of is that he wanted to... Like, he was framing the Ice Warriors from the off. Hmm. So the only thing I can think of is that he would shoot quickly retract his weapon and try and blame the Ice Warriors and say, well, they carry weapons openly and just hope mm. that no one remembered that he has one of them. Yeah. Because the only people who know are Hepesh and Centauri, right? Yeah. And uh, he and he also... Pro- and this is, this is the thing, though. The Doctor knows that the, uh, the Ice Warriors use sonic-based weaponry. Yeah. Uh, whereas his is more of a disintegration type thing. So, well, the Doctor will be gone, so... Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, like he you know he's a he's a sly bastard. He's like the definitely the one like fucking in the background, you know. Mm-hmm. But Hepesh though, Hepesh is I find Hepesh to be an interesting character. He's a, mm. he's a little bit more complex than he comes off at the start because he does kind of come across as this stereotypical priest figure, like Clitoxel or yeah. any one of those that we've seen s- before. Just gonna say Clitoxel, willing to use his religion and the dedicated followers of that religion for what to us seems to be his own benefit. Mm-hmm. He wants to be the power behind the throne, is the yeah. way it comes across. And like I said earlier, I do think he does have a genuine affection for mm-hmm. Paladon. I think like he helped raise this young man. I think he does care for him. I also think that he was actually being honest when he told the Doctor why he did what he did. And that's the thing. I don't think Hapesh actually sees himself as a villain. I think he no. sees himself as like a patriot to his planet and his people and his king. Yeah. Um, I think the fears that he shares with the Doctor, I think, are all genuine fears that he has. Yeah. And, you know, those fears may be similar to fears that maybe an elder generation of our time has of maybe homosexuals or trans people or whatever. But to him, they're genuine fears that he has. And possibly Paladon's mother sharing all these stories of Earth of, you know, like if you imagine, if say if the Earth of this time is similar to, take the Star Trek comparison of, 
you know, religion does not drive government. Mm-hmm. You know, equal rights for everybody, women liberation, and blah blah blah. And like, do what they read. Sorry, go on with your point. But I think that to someone in his position who grew up the life he did, that's fucking scary. And then you've Arcturus coming in and fucking egging him on. And what the another part that makes it worse is right is that it as his you know role as like Earth's delegate, like you know the Doctor, no matter what the Doctor says to him, Arcturus has poisoned the well too much. That yep. the only thing the Doctor can do is reveal who he actually is, but that puts Joe at risk then. Yeah, and so like, unfortunately, yeah, she's like, uh, no, you could say like that Hepesh is a victim. But yeah, I don't think he is though. No, yeah, because I like, think it's okay to feel sorry for him. But it only goes so far. It only goes so far because he clearly felt no remorse for killing his brother. For killing his own brother. Yeah. And the fact that he went through this elaborate thing with the doctor, put what I think is some genuine emotion out there around his fears, drew him a map, said, "You can leave. I mm-hmm. do. I just want you to not be here. Mm-hmm. Go, fuck off." leave us alone and then literally hunt him down yeah it's like if you were genuine in your fear you've explained your fear to this person you just want them to leave don't fucking follow it up you're just opening yourself up to being revealed i suppose like this is the thing now right is that because because his own brother was the first person that he had had killed Mm. Everyone else who was just a stranger, it's easier. So he he's yeah. cro- he's crossed that line of no return. I think I think the I think the saddest part though was when you sort of realized, or at least I I found it that he would have killed the king. He had gone too far, yeah. to fail. Mm-hmm. And if killing if protecting Peladon the planet meant killing Peladon the man, yeah. He was now at the point where he was willing and able to do that and that's where i think the remorse kind of yeah it, it, it flickers stops. away, it, it flickers away. <laughs> but yeah, i think he i think he's i, I like the fact that i like, compared to clitoxel he's much more well-rounded um oh hugely and he's much more he's much more complex character clitoxel was just clitoxel was just a straight laced villain like you, you yeah he was like what you see is what you get power hungry priest who loves his power whereas hapesh i think is a bit more complex than that no just as you say hapesh is a character Clitoxel was still great though. <laughs> oh, Clitoxel was you know was fantastic. But I like, remember at the time, like I said, like yo, know, was he a small bit of a caricature? You know, when he st- mm. stooped over fucking Richard the Third esque fucking <sighs> goings on, you know. Whereas like with Hepesh, it's like it, it in the sense of like, you know if you want to bring it to Thanos type thing, you know, okay, oh like I get where he, I get where he's coming from. Mm. He's still fucking wrong though. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Which is a sign of, I think, is a really good villain. Mm, I would agree. Mm. I would definitely agree. Mm-hmm. And he's also wears purple. Just, I like. I actually like the look of the Peladonians. It's like, the, um, they're like blonde, but they have like a red stripe that goes through the center of their hairline. Mm. So I don't know. It's kind of cool. Maybe next Halloween you can dress up like your someone from Peladon. Pretty much. Just be part of your your yeah. your beard and your and your mustache. <laughs> uh, <laughs> red. <laughs>
so we come to the final part of the episode, the overall score, where we will each give a score out of five. And so, Trish, how about you go first? Cool. So the song gets five out of five, as I've probably said a million times. I'm sorry. I just love that song so much. Yeah. However, um, overall, I think the story is well structured. I think it's well acted. I think it's well paced. Mm-hmm. It's just long enough. There's no time wasted. I really enjoyed like I haven't watched this I have watched this story before but that was years ago like mm-hmm. probably close to 10 years ago and like I've owned it that whole time but I haven't watched it probably since the first time I watched it mm-hmm. the few things that I didn't like yeah in my mind didn't take away any of my enjoyment of the story and I sort of equated it a little bit to the Romans. There was bits in the Romans that were problematic. Mm-hmm. Nero being sex pest. Nero, but that didn't take away from my enjoyment. And the same here, um, the bits about the doctor that I wasn't a big fan of, the bits about the king I wasn't a big fan of, those just fit to develop those characters a bit more. Mm-hmm. Do you know and make them more well rounded? It was it was done quite well, um, in that respect. I think it was a strong Doctor story. It was a strong Joe story. I love the fact that they subvert expectations by having the Ice Warriors be the best characters in the story. (laughs) Other than Joe. (laughs) Um, And I love the fact that they don't make Hepesh just the, you know, crazy, for the greater good bad guy. Mm -hmm. He was played by someone that apparently was a puppet master. Do you know? Mm-hmm. All of that was fantastic. I gotta give it a five. I I really enjoyed it. And do you know what? I'm pretty glad that I've given it a five. Because I don't think we've given John a five in a while. We... Or we ever. Did we? No, jeez, we have. We did. We oh, yeah. Silurians and Inferno. Oh, yeah. Obviously. But uh, we have not given John a five in a while, and I'm very happy to now give him a five. I was actually, uh, so before I get to that, I was actually looking at the amount of fives that we've given. Hmm. So like we gave two in Hartnell's first series for Edge and Aztecs. Hmm. Now we both gave a joint five for the Romans in season two, but I gave I gave two fives: one for the Rescue and one for the Crusade. And then we don't get another five until Enemy of the World. Mm. long way away and then we don't get another one until the, the war games um, so but anyway to my point a political whodunit monster mystery on a stormy night in a mountain castle sign me up <laughs> like, I, like I probably haven't watched this in the same time frame I haven't watched this in about 10 years to the extent of I actually forgot who did it like, like, <laughs> like I as in, like I forgot. You forgot about Arcturus. I forgot about Arcturus. I like I couldn't remember if it was him or if it was the Ice Warriors. Um. So like I just like enjoyed the story. Like as you said, it's great performances from everyone. Like um, even like your know, Terry Walsh. Like because Grun is completely silent. He's a mute. Mm. But like Jesus Christ, he's good and imposing, and I actually just like his. No, I love. I really love when. Sorry, I started to cut across you guys have to say yeah. it, right? When the doctor goes to find 
you're you're a big strong Agador. Yeah, you're a big strong guy, uh, Grant. But, like, I'm not, I'm actually, but like, he holds his hand. It's so cute. <laughs> or he actually says, like, you know, you're a mighty warrior, Grant, but what you're about to see might, you know, you know, confuse you or shock you. And then he manages to tame Agador. So I like that. Um, he wasn't as richly developed as Campbell, but that's, again, over a much lo- uh, wider story. Mm. But anyway, but still a great performance from Terry Walsh. Um, like, the the proper standouts, though, the two big standouts are Alan Binion as Islier and mm. Katie. This yeah. is this is another contender for, like, that top spot in her rambling when she leaves. Uh, like, the sets were great. And, like, it felt a bit claustrophobic at times, which I think really added to the suspense factor mm. for me. It was really good. And, like, like you, like, there was some small things that, like, you know, were minor niggles. Like, Arturus's head was just a bit weird because, like, you see, the, the mouth never opens mm. on the puppets. So it's just a head moving around and, like, the sound comes. It's also not a puppet. There's a guy in there. Yeah, they know there's a guy in there. Like, yeah, but, mm. like, the, 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 the head is, mm. it's a mannequin head. Like, and, but at the same time, I was like, wait, but it didn't take me out of the story. No. That was just an observation on uh, my on my point, you know? Um, and especially, it's a, a very minor quibble, given everything else that works about him. Like how the life support system itself works. Like he's constantly being flooded with some weird uh, liquid, green liquid. Thing yeah. Um, and like again, it just gives you like this thing of like, oh, he's it's like a guy walking around in, a, in an iron lung, but then you realize that the iron lung is actually a fucking Terminator <laughs> or Transformer or whatever the hell it is. Um, but no, I think the. The best thing about this story is the complete, as you said, the complete subversion of expectations in relation to the Ice Warrior and having them be amazing mm. in the actual story. Yeah, so again, I'm a five out of five. That's great. Um, I think, you know, last season was a bit up and down. We Yeah, we were very, we were very mixed on season eight. Yeah, and like last week was a 2.5, so I'm glad that we've got a strong 5 here mm. with the Curse of Padlon. I was it the one thing I would have liked to have had? Yeah. Just because I think it would be cute. I sort of would have liked, um, if there was a scene where, like, say, Joe's being chased by the guards or whatever. Yeah. And, like, she runs around a corner or something, and the guards just stop. And she doesn't know why, and they sure it's just, like... Sorg just standing over her, kind of being like, <laughs> "Fuck off." <laughs> Sorg, Sorg is the Benton in this story. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Like, I just, I had so much fun watching the story. So I like I watched so it. So much fun. I watched it last night, and you know, usually I watch it and I kind of pause and note and go, and, and I was like, "Oh fuck, I'll do the notes later." <laughs> I yeah. just like kept going. Yeah. But, um, as, but as you kind of point out, this is like what, for a lot of people, is classic Who in its essence. Yeah. It's suspense. It's horror. It's like really fucking good cliffhanger endings. And this was all done in studio. Yeah. Which is, which is great, you know. Hmm. Um, oftentimes, I think when we see Doctor Who on film, I think it's it can sort of feel like it's raised to another level, right? Because while the sets in this were great, I mean, mm. the underground caves aren't actually underground. They're behind yeah. a random wall. Mm-hmm. 
So they're actually like, the geography doesn't really work. And we use the same four rooms mm. over and over and over again. But you don't care. No. You you truly don't. Like, if you compare it to something like the Romans, which is a much bigger, grander story, it still stands up next to us. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Like, even though it's a simpler location, even though you've got, like, <laughs> a prick in a cloak. Yeah. <laughs> and whatever. It's just, the story is just so intriguing. It's it's fantastic. Highly, highly recommend. Yeah. And like, again, like it's a, it's a huge, like it's a big tip of the hat to Brian Hales, like, because we talked about like, you know, his back catalog, Celestial Toymaker, Smugglers, uh, Ice Warriors, Seeds of Death. They're, they're all like, for me, really, really good stories. Mm. Um, but the fact that, you know, you have an allegory here that is, that is a continual. Politics will always be a thing. Mm. And again, it just kind of shows like, you know, how good like sci-fi is at kind of representing or being a reflection of what's going on in the, in the world. Yeah. You know? uh, but no, definitely to anyone to check this out. It's a f- fucking fantastic story. So we've gone from a 2.5 last week, doubled our score up to a five this week. It'll be interesting. Now, next week, we're going back to Earth. Mm-hmm. will it stay up are we going to stay up in the five or are we going to drop back down join us next week as we talk about the sea devils Ooh. Mm. i can just imagine the zal